five, four, three, two, one. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Inside You. I'm your host, Xavier Otic, and we are back for Group of Five Wednesday. A huge amount of news has happened since Monday's episode, so we're going to get right into it. First things first, probably the saddest story at the moment. Kevontae Turpin, TCU's stellar kick returner and wide receiver, has been dismissed from the team. Turpin was dismissed following a domestic assault allegation against him from a woman he had been involved in a relationship with. After that initial allegation came out and fouls were ch- charges were filed, excuse me, it was revealed that this was actually the second time he had, had an incident with this woman. There had been a previous incident in New Mexico from a few months ago. TCU apparently was unaware of that first incident prior to the second incident. They ultimately dismissed him from the team. If you want to know how fast TCU wanted to get rid of him, his player profile for the school is already deleted. This is very unfortunate for the school. This is the first of a number of bad news to be released this week from TCU and Gary Patterson's team. Michael Collins, it was announced we were replacing Sean Robinson for the remainder of the season. Collins came in in relief of Robbins this past week against Oklahoma. And ever since he came in, the offense started to finally show some spark. Unfortunately, they were never able to dig themselves out of the hole against the Sooners. But Robinson now is done for the season. He's having surgery on his non-throwing shoulder. And it appears that Robinson has been suffering this injury for quite some time, but has been trying to play through it. But now he is done. So... Certainly not Gary Patterson's best team. They've been plagued by injuries all year. Obviously losing Ross Blacklock to start the season. They've certainly never been able to really recover from that. Watching them this last weekend against TCU, I was at the game. Excuse me, against Oklahoma, I was at the game. It was definitely a lot of times where you could tell if they had a good pass rusher on the field, things might be different. But essentially, Kyler Murray was just sitting back there dissecting TCU's secondary at his will. Now, Speaking specifically about Turpin, Turpin was one of the few offensive weapons in the game. He had two touchdowns, one of them being a 99-yard kickoff return for a touchdown. He's an explosive playmaker, very much a guy who, even with his small stature, five foot nine, 157 pounds, certainly possibly a late-round, middle-round pick in the NFL or a guy who might be able to sign on as a free agent. Now, with that being said, in Saturday's game against Oklahoma, I was sitting in one of the end zone sections and there was a moment in the game where TCU had a crucial third and seven. They attempted a pass play. It didn't work out. Turpin was the deep threat on the play. He, after not having the ball thrown his way by Michael Collins, essentially threw up his hands in frustration and then walked off into the sideline and was replaced. This was going into a crucial fourth and seven that TCU actually tried to go for very much TCU's last opportunity for them to really make a run at possibly trying a comeback against the Sooners. For a guy like Turpin, who was essentially their best offensive playmaker on the field at that time, to essentially voluntarily take himself out of that play, to me, is a big marker of his character. And so for them to me to learn of these allegations, which if you read them, he's essentially being accused of having dragged a woman across a parking lot after being angry at her for his belief that she was sending photos of herself to other guys. Certainly not the kind of behavior that you want to hear from anyone uh, and just quite a shame. Now, what makes this really interesting in the college sports world to me is wondering what this might mean for his future. Turpin is a senior. He would have been done after this year anyway, 
if he had finished his year the way he had started, it would not surprise me for him to be drafted by a team as a special teams, more Darren Sproles-like player. And of course, now, certainly, we're going to have to see what happens with the legal process and whether he faces any jail time, et cetera, et cetera. But if he were to end up being an NFL-eligible player at some time in the near future, would a team be willing to take a chance on him giving this history? Now, if you're saying, oh, there's no way any team would ever pick him, let's not forget about Joe Mixon, the former Oklahoma running back who literally punched a woman in the face and his only punishment was being dropped to the second round. So very interesting to see what this means going forward. The NFL certainly appears to at least on the surface taking a hardened stance against domestic violence. Would not surprise me if Turpin were to enter the league under the personal conduct policy, the new one, that he would face a suspension to start his time in the NFL. But it'll be very interesting to see what Turpin's future holds. Obviously, for a Horned Frog team that already is not what we're usually accustomed to under Gary Patterson, the loss of their best offensive weapon to a essentially decimated offense is going to hurt. So very sorry here, all around a sad story. But again, given the voluntary taking himself out by Turpin on Saturday to then find out that later that night and then for his being arrested on Sunday, character-wise, just it didn't really surprise me. So that moves us along to Kirk Herbstreet, a college football analyst on the popular ESPN TV show College Game Day. Last weekend on game day, he incised UCF Athletic Director Danny White after basically making comments saying essentially, why are we only talking about UCF? There are a number of other group of five programs that we should be talking about who might be, and then he said, more deserving than the Golden Knights. Naturally, this caused quite a bit of unhappiness among the charge on fan base. And to be fair, in regards to Kirk Herbstreet's comments, he certainly was correct in identifying four programs, Central Florida, Utah State, Appalachian State, and Fresno State, who had been very impressive this year. But what made me angry was that he automatically jumped to for a New Year's Six Bowl, essentially admitting that there's no way in heck that you're ever going to see a group of five team make it into the playoff. Now, to be fair, I do not believe we'd ever see that happen. But at the same time, it has already been a crazy year in college football, obviously noted by last week in Purdue upsetting Ohio State with a critical mass of the season still in front of us. Why are we already going to the conclusion of there's no way in heck any of these teams get in? So that's what made me angry. But then let's look at some of these other teams that Herbstreit did mention. Obviously, starting off with the Golden Knights, they're undefeated at 7-0. They're on a 20-game win streak. They've got Mackenzie Milton, who, although he started the year with some Heisman buzz, has kind of faded out. But still, from top to bottom, given that they're playing in the American Athletic Conference, which right now is definitely by far the best group of five league, they've got Temple in there, who's undefeated in conference play. Cincinnati was ranked up until this last weekend when they lost to Temple. South Florida's ranked. Central Florida's ranked. Houston is on the verge of being ranked. A lot of really good overperforming teams in that conference, teams that have beaten Power 5 programs. But to be fair... The Golden Knights do lack a victory over a Power 5 team. Their one opportunity would have been against a horrid North Carolina team, which was canceled because of Hurricane Florence. I really don't think a victory over this North Carolina team would add much to the Golden Knights' resume. But if it ends up being that they're held out for strength of schedule, you're going to be hearing a lot of people cursing Hurricane Florence. Moving on to Utah State, the second team Hershey mentioned, they're 6-1. Their only loss coming to Michigan State at the time, 
certainly the program that showed the initial cracks in Michigan State's armor. Jordan loves playing phenomenal, 14 touchdowns, only four interceptions. However, looking at Utah State, they still have games against Hawaii and Boise State, both on the road. Even with Boise State not having performed up to initial expectations, still a very good team. No guarantee that they end up winning even their division of the Mountain West Mountain Division. Then we got Mount. Excuse me. Then we have Appalachian State. Scott Scatter Scott Satterfield's team has certainly earned some traction in the last few weeks. I've heard Satterfield's name linked to a couple of Power Five jobs like Georgia Tech. They're five and one. Their lone loss coming to Penn State in overtime. Similar to Utah State, they were the program that initially showed the cracks in Penn State's armor. However, looking at their schedule, they still have to play Neil Brown's Troy team, who last night had a very impressive win over South Alabama. So, similar to Utah State, certainly no guarantees there. Also, I'm not sure if losses, even if they're close losses to Power 5 teams, do much for a team in the committee's eyes. In my eyes, it's impressive. But in the committee eyes, I think you actually have to beat that team that was so much higher ranked than you. I think that's when Boise's losing to Oklahoma State, even with them being not what we expected this year, hurt them so much because it was really their last opportunity to essentially play above their level of expectations. Then finally, Fresno State, they're 6-1. and one. Their lone loss is to Minnesota. And the, keep in mind, Minnesota lost to Nebraska last weekend. So for them to lose to them isn't certainly great. Now, they did manage to defeat UCLA, but that was with Dorian Thompson-Robinson in his first start in replacing Wolfen Spates after Spates suffered a back injury. And looking at their schedule, they've got no cakewalk looked ever with games against Boise State and San Diego State. Boise State very much in the running in the Mountain West Mountain Division right behind Utah State. San Diego State in control of the Mountain West West Division. So a lot of interesting things to see going forward. But certainly all four of those programs are very much at the higher end of the group of five at the moment. I was a little distraught that Herb Freak didn't match in didn't mention San Diego State. The Aztecs alone lost of the season coming to Stanford, which at the time was playing like Stanford. Now they're playing like something else. And then remember they did manage to beat Arizona State coming off their upset of Michigan State. So one last team we want to throw in there. And that moves us along to Maryland, the University of Maryland has finally, excuse me, the University of Maryland system has finally wrapped up their investigation into the University of Maryland football program and head coach DJ Durkin. The investigation was finished this last Friday. On Tuesday, the board held a meeting where they reviewed, they began the process of reviewing the investigation's findings and working their way through these steps they were going to make going forward. One of the interesting things that has emerged since the start of the investigation was a number of parents have come out against bringing back DJ Durkin as head coach of the University of Maryland's football program. One article which a number of the parents were not named outright. Instead, a number of them were used anonymity because of their fear of backlash against their children said that the parents had essentially split into three groups. Some of them were for bringing Durkin back. Some of them were against him, and then some really didn't care. One of the things to note is that at this time, Maryland does not receive a full share of the Big Ten's revenue. They don't get that revenue until 2021. Also, 
Their basketball program is one of the programs that has been consistently linked to the pay-for-play scandal. So it's interesting to see how that plays out. And Durkin has a 5.8 million buyout. Now, be that as it may, it's very hard for me to believe that DJ Durkin comes back. Certainly could happen, but it would shock me. And I'm rarely shocked in sports if he were to come back, just given kind of the continuous bad press that they've been subjected to for the last four or so months following Jordan McNair's death. It'd be very interesting to see how the school handles it. Looking at the rest of the hierarchy, Wallace D. Lowe, he's essentially a guy I could see them getting away with just because he's kind of immaterial. I don't even know if he has a buyout and if it's something, it's nowhere near the 5.8 David O'Durkin. Damon Evans is another interesting character, Maryland athletic director, in that he was just named the full-time athletic director, but he had previously served in an interim capacity, and he had been the football program's liaison between the athletic department for a number of years. So there's a question of how much knowledge he had. But it's going to be very interesting to see what the University of Maryland System Board does here. Now, the University of Maryland System Board can only fire Wallace D. Lowe since they were the ones that hired him, the University of Maryland then would have to say that they were going to fire Durkin and Evans. So it's possible that while the Maryland system says, okay, Lo, you're gone, the school says, well, we're going to stay with these two guys, but give them, you know, two a year suspension for the remainder of football season or something along those lines. But we'll see what happens. Certainly going to be interesting. That'll be certainly take over and control the news cycle when not only that investigation released, those findings come out, Durkin's future is announced, and then Jordan McNair's parents respond. So that gets us to a group of five game that was played on this past Tuesday night. Troy taking on South Alabama. Troy getting the job done there. They're 6-2 and two this year, 4-0 in the Sun Belt. Sawyer Smith, three touchdowns. And this was just another good game for Neil Brown's team. Remember, Brown entered this season and finished last season with a lot of hype following his upset over LSU. LSU right now, given what they're doing, to me, that makes that victory even more impressive. And with what in my mind is kind of a down year for new coaching and hot coaches, Brown may be just slowly kind of differentiating himself from the pack. Although it's been a little odd in that we haven't really heard his name. So it'll be interesting to see what goes on there. But Certainly another good win for Troy. The Sun Belt is turning out to one of the more interesting conferences with the rise of Appalachian State and should be very interesting to see where they go from here. That moves us along to college basketball. The pay-for-play, the first trial of James Gatto, Merrill Code, and Kristen Dawkins wrapped up this past week. They were all found guilty of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. I am not surprised by this verdict. The He's laws that they were charged with breaking on their face while the reason they were being charged paying basketball players and their families appeared a little tangential to the purpose of the law it appeared to me that they very clearly broke them also when the government comes after you in a case like this specifically when it's a civil case and they're looking for a civil penalty as well as criminal charges they rarely lose those and it just appeared that While it was very clear that they had done what they were being accused of, the best defense for these three individuals was to essentially say that the government should be bringing this case, which by the time you get to an actual trial, it's going to be very hard to convict a jury to go along with that reasoning. Now, with that being said, these men won't be sentenced until March 5th. 
due to federal sentencing guidelines, they're looking at about two to four years. Depending on their sentencing, it's hard for me to believe that these men do not try and appeal their convictions. Although once you get that official determination, it would be hard to find a reason why they should be given a new trial. But I do wonder if now that these men are looking at sentencing, if they might finally go to the U.S. government and the prosecutor and say, okay, now we'd like to flip in hopes for a more lenient sentence. Certainly, these men don't appear to be threats to their community. Uh, they don't aren't violent offenders. Them agreeing to cooperate in with there being two more cases in the near future, one of them involving a lot of former uh, college assistant basketball coaches could go a long way in assisting the government in their case. Also, one of the more interesting things to come in the last few days is that Sylvia D'Souza, who was one of the players who was consistently connected with the pay-for-play trial, has been suspended from the University of Kansas pending a re- investigation as to his eligibility. Should be interesting to see what happens going forward. If D'Souza were to be declared ineligible, it will be interesting to see if someone either connected closely to Kansas or one of the other top college basketball schools then tries to also make a case going after Duke Zion Williamson. Well, William, the information given in the trial regarding Williamson was nowhere near as strong as that given regarding D'Souza and his legal guardian, Famil Gay. <clears throat> and his legal guardian, it was still... His being named still is certainly a cause for concern. So sticking with college basketball, Darius Baisley becomes the $1 million intern. One of the bigger stories this week, Baisley is a six foot nine, 200-pound McDonald's All-American. He graduated high school just this last year. To put that into perspective, Kevin Durant is 6'9 and 240 pounds, so Baisley's got about 40 pounds less than him. If you look at photos of him, he's very long. And he's got a good frame, but he just needs to certainly gain some weight. Basley's path initially was that he committed to Syracuse to play for Jim Beheim, obviously going to go the one done out. Then he decommitted from Syracuse, saying he was going to go to the G League. However, in between his dis- announcing he was going to go to the G League, he hired Rich Paul. Rich Paul being LeBron James's agent, the CEO and founder of Clutch Sports. And now he's going to be an intern for New Balance. This comes following his signing a deal with New Balance for this year, will he be paid $1 million and given a three-month internship with New Balance in Boston? And this is a multi-year deal where if he were to meet all the incentives, he can make up towards of $14 million. And this comes after New Balance announced that it was going to try and get back in the basketball suit industry. Last year, they made a hard push trying to get the Celtics Gordon Hayward, but unfortunately were unsuccessful. So many have said that while this deal is a bit surprising considering the uncertainty of whether Basley will pan out, it may be a move to hopefully then get in one of Rich Paul's coveted other clients in the near future. Certainly a possibility. Now, I have nothing against this deal in terms of the money he's getting paid. The pay-for-place trial has made it very clear that the big shoe companies were willing to shell out upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars for highly rated recruits. And also that was Ill- done illegally. So for them to legally give someone a million dollars kind of shows you what the market could be like if some of these guys were to continue to go that route in the near future. Or more importantly, if the NCAA were allowed these players to sign deals with shoe companies or other advertisers as college prospects. So that's interesting. However, why I don't like it is because I question whether 
This is a short-term gain without a long-term payoff. Looking at Basley now, he is going to be essentially in charge of his own training. I know he's already training with Mike Miller in Memphis, former NBA player on the University of Memphis' staff. However, Miller's ability to devote time to Basley will certainly decrease once Penny Hardaway and the Tigers season becomes goes into goes into flow. Certainly, he won't be able to devote as much time to him. Also, Basley will need to be in Boston for his internship. That's going to require that he find private coaching in the area. I'm sure Rich Paul has a couple of people involved. But again, he's going to be essentially in charge of doing all of this on his own. You know, the good route with going the college route is, well, you don't get paid. Essentially, everything is taken care of from scheduling to timing to what you eat, when you do it, how you're doing it. It's a good transition from taking a guy who just a few months ago was in high school to kind of introducing them to what basketball as a business is like and then setting them up for that pro career. In Basley's case, this is an 18-year-old kid who's now being told, okay, you have to make decisions that seriously are going to affect not only you but also your family in the future. Bit of a cause for concern. Don't know what his maturity is like mentally. Should be interesting. Also, Rich Paul himself has kind of already admitted that it'll be difficult finding comparable competition for Basley given that while he is a kind of sui generis or unique case, the majority of top talent is in colleges right now, which means they're getting the benefit of not only playing against them, but also in practices and scrimmages and other things like that. Basley now has to find top talent, which means I guess he's either going to be playing against top high school prospects, which I don't know how much that'll do for him, or maybe kind of guys who are trying to work their way back into the NBA or maybe, you know, Europe, but going to be difficult there. And when I was looking at this, it reminded me a lot of Jeremy Tyler. Remember Tyler was a San Diego high school basketball superstar. He chose to forgo his senior year of high school. He also was aligned with Sonny Vaccaro, who's a shoe baron in his own right. He ended up signing a professional deal with Italy. And when he got there, he realized how difficult basketball as a business can be. There was people commenting on him being lazy and not having the work ethic. And in reality, it was just a child being asked to compete against grown men who were doing something for a living. Certainly a lot of pitfalls and potentials for concern. And already Rich Paul has kind of acknowledged the fact that Basley isn't really ready for the NBA when he basically said there was no real upside of him going to the G League. Keep in mind, if he's not ready to play against G League talent, which is talent, which is really fringe NBA talent, it's hard for me to imagine that this is a guy that just in a matter of a few months is going to turn into a lottery pick that can then be competing against the DeAndre Ayton, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Carmelo Anthony, et cetera, of the world. What, obviously, the biggest concern there being he needs to put on some serious weight. going to be very hard for him to put on that weight that quickly. Certainly, also with him being taller, he has to grow into his body. They always say that with bigs, it takes a little bit longer for them to fully develop. However, he does have that loved upside, which you always hear scouts talk about. You know, the upside on this guy is real high, but the unfortunate part that he's not going to have is that he's got this upside, but it's what are you comparing it against? You know, as bad as the NCAA model may be in that these guys aren't getting paid, you do have a definite comparable comparison ability where you can look at, okay, how did this guy do when this guy was guarding him? We predict this guy to go in this round or at this time okay, he did better, he did worse, he should go above him, he should go below him. 
Now, Basley's going to have to do, my guess would be, a lot of private individual workouts with teams. Certainly, the pre-draft combine will be good, although by all accounts, that's essentially the all-star game. Not much defense, a lot of just kind of showing off. Certainly, if he were to get hurt in one of those pre-draft combines or in a private workout, that would just be tragic. You know, if he did go the college route, if in the end of the year he's still not ready physically, okay, he just goes right back to school. If he's not a lottery pick after this year, what really happens to him? Is he then going to go to Europe? Are we just putting off the inevitable? I just don't like it from a sheer. I don't really think they looked at the long-term benefit. And while you can say, okay, but he did get a million dollars, yes, but after taxes, that's not going to be enough for him to sustain the rest of his life off of off of one paycheck. So it's just a cause for concern. But you know, to be to his credit, Basley has kind of already admitted, and Rich Paul kind of has already admitted that. You know, a lot of this is now on him. It is a gamble, and we'll see what happens from there. So, very interesting to see. I don't know if this will become a trend, you know, going forward. We'll have to see how things pan out. Could be a model for what might happen with uh, the youngest ball in a few years, given that, similar to Basley, he no longer is a NCAA-eligible recruit. But it should be interesting to see what happens. That moves along to... Also with college basketball, the first AP Top 25 was released in the past few days and gives me an opportunity to talk about college basketball and how I think it's changed in the last few years. And essentially, in my opinion, given the just emergence and explosion of the AAU and one and duns and just kind of star ball, which is what I view most of college basketball as now, we've really seen the loss and the diminishment of teams. And, you know, during the year, obviously having five McDonald's All-Americans on your team and five five-star recruits returning five, very impressive, and it looks good and you're going to win a lot of games. But when you get to that NCAA tournament model, it's no wonder to me why Villanova has managed to win two championships in the last three years and why Gonzaga who lost two years ago to Duke in the national championship game. These are teams. These are programs that are actually developing players, bringing them in, working with them, and then fitting them into their formula versus essentially what Duke or Kansas or Kentucky has become is roll up the ball, not much coaching, not much development. You kind of just take them as you get them, you use them, and then you move along. And then looking at this year's basketball's top 25, Gonzaga's third mock Fuse program, they're not a, really a program that's going to get many five-star recruits. Maybe we'll get one a year. Virginia, their five, certainly need to work on their postseason model. You know, with that zone kind of just slow model, they are vulnerable when they get to the tournament and they face a team that shoots a lot of threes. Nevada, a surprising number seven overall. That's a team that has a lot of returning talent. Again, more of a team. And then, like I said, Villanova at number nine. And if I'm Jay Wright right now, I'm ecstatic because even with that ninth ranking and with what they lost, if you look at Villanova last year, a lot of that team and a lot of the teams that they've had really didn't have a lot of NBA prospects on it, but they just work in their system. They came together and they played smart. So very interesting to see what happens going forward in college basketball. Certainly you're not going to change the star model that we've fallen into at the moment. And it'll be interesting to see what happens if the rumored changes that the NCA and NCA player, excuse me, NBA and NBA players association do go into effect. But I wonder if the long-term impact on the game from that is that they're hurting college basketball overall. So we'll see. So that brings us back to the Heisman. Now, 
On Monday, I purposely didn't talk about Ohio State and Purdue this past weekend because I wanted to save that to talk about Dwayne Haskins of the Heisman. So if you missed it, Ohio State got absolutely bludgeoned by Jeff Brom and Purdue's team. Shout out to Tyler Trent, the Purdue student fighting cancer who predicted the Boilermakers upset. And this game was a game where just about everything went wrong for the Buckeyes. What had been a very good defensive line with Chase Young filling in for Nick Bosa allowed DJ Knock for run for three touchdowns. Rondale Miller poured another two. Dwayne Haskins just looks all out of sorts. He just was not in control. Him and his receivers appeared to be off. A number of balls were just thrown into space where there was no one really there. He was just rattled. The run game never really got going. And essentially, Ohio State was just manhandled from quarter to quarter. Now, what makes this interesting to me is that this program, which just a few months ago, they were raving about Ryan Day and the job they had done, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's the fault the sky is falling in and something's wrong and something needs to be done. To be clear, it's not that hard for me to imagine a program being upset in college football, given that it's college football. That's why we love it. Any week, anything can happen. Anyone can lose. Furthermore, Clemson last year suffered a surprising loss to Pitt. The year before, they had that surprising loss to Miami. Miami, they suffered that loss to Pitt. You know, for me to just kind of, for us to just kind of pick on Ohio State for losing a game they shouldn't is really unfair. And I think a lot of that comes with the fact that other than Dabo, Urban Meyer is probably the closest thing we get to Nick Saban. And to Meyer's credit, what makes him more similar to Saban, he's the guy that's done it at two, three programs. He did it at Utah State with Alex Smith. He did it at Florida with Tim Tebow. And now he's doing it at Ohio State. Nick Saban, remember, he's done it at Michigan State, LSU, and now at Alabama. Dabo, he's really only done it at Clemson. We haven't seen him have to move on to a new program and kind of start from scratch and really build from the bottom up. So I really think this is more of just the saving effect and kind of the unfairness being labeled on Urban Meyer. Certainly the run game is a concern. The offensive and defensive lines are a concern. But if the one game they lose this week, this season is to Purdue in a night game on the road, I really don't think that that keeps them out of the playoff, especially if they go on to run the table. They're going to they beat a Michigan team that's ranked probably in the top four or five by that point. And then they managed to win the big 10 championship. So not too much of a cause for concern. However, I will say that this game probably did prevent Haskins from being a contender for the Heisman trophy going forward, just given his poor performance. Uh, And then looking at their schedule, they still have to play New Mexico, excuse me, Michigan state and Michigan Michigan State, while their offense is horrid at the moment, their defense is still very much formidable. I'm sure D'Antonio watched the tape of the Ohio State game and is already trying to skimming up ways to fluster Haskins similarly. However, Haskins still does have 30 touchdowns to five interceptions, but most likely his Heisman Trophy candidacy is done. So that yeah, gets my, to my ranking. Tua Tagovailoa still in first, 29, 25 touchdowns to zero interceptions. He had four touchdowns against Tennessee this last weekend. However, his knee injury still is a cause for concern. He did not finish the game. Jalen Hurts came in. Jalen Hurts, then it was announced, had a procedure on his ankle injury. So at the moment, it's possible that only Mac Jones is the true, fully healthy quarterback on that team. Should be interesting to see if Tagovailoa maybe sits out a game in the near future. Maybe that game right before the Iron Bowl. However, this weekend, excuse me, next weekend with Alabama taking on LSU 
you bet that he'll be on the field. Then at second, and I have Kyler Murray. Now what makes Kyler Murray to me unique from Dwayne Haskins is that in the lone loss that the Sooners have to Texas, he still performed very well. Four touchdowns in that game, four touchdowns this last weekend against TCU on the road, 25 touchdowns to three interceptions. Also, he's one of the few guys who has that nice narrative given his status having been drafted in the MLB, MLB draft. That certainly, I think, will attract some voters. So he's very much my number two right now. Then at four, excuse me, number three, I have Rondo Moore. Seven touchdowns overall, two against Ohio State. But I do think the fact that it's very likely that Purdue loses three games to finish out the season against Michigan State, Iowa, and Wisconsin will be the reason why Moore's candidacy kind of ends there. Also, with the Heisman Trophy, it's very much a what-have-you-done-for-us-lately competition. So while Moore is the flavor of the week this week, who knows who it will be after this weekend. Then Gardner Minshew, he's my number five, excuse me, my number four, 23 touchdowns to six interceptions. Also, he's going to get the benefit of what I like to call the game day bump. We saw this happen with Lamar Jackson. You pull off a nice win in front of your home fans with college game day. You get all that positive attention and press. All eyes were on them this last weekend. That will continue to assist him going forward. He has been very stellar and has really floundered in Mike Leach's system. And looking at the rest of their schedule, really they've got Stanford this weekend, who at the moment does not look like what we normally expect from Stanford. And then the Apple Cup will be very interesting the year, but that is a home game in Pullman, depending on what happens with Tagovailoa's knee injury, depending on what happens with Kyler Murray going forward, it's possible that he could sneak in there. And then number five, I've got Benny Snell. Snell rebounded following a rough game against Texas A&M, 169 yards with one touchdown this last weekend against Vanderbilt. He's got 868 yards on the season, but they now enter a crucial stretch against Missouri, Georgia, and Tennessee. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Benny Snell going forward. But remember this weekend, we've got Georgia taking on Florida. The winner of that game will really be, assuming Kentucky also wins, will really be Kentucky's biggest threat going forward in that SEC East. And if Snell and the Wildcats finish with one loss and they come out of the SEC East, it is hard for me not to give it to him just because of how much harder they've had to work to get there. So that moves us along to the previews of this weekend's games. Starting off on Thursday, Appalachian State traveling to Georgia Southern. Appalachian State favored by 10 there. They're coming off a victory over Louisiana Anna Lafayette, 27-17. Georgia Southern, a victory over New Mexico State, 48-31. They're 6-1. Their lone loss is to Clemson. Appalachian State, same record. Lone loss is to Penn State. However, looking at common opponents, Appalachian State defeated South Alabama 52-7 and Arkansas State 35-9. South Alabama defeated, excuse me, Georgia Southern defeated South Alabama 48-13 and Arkansas State 28-21. Appalachian State is just a slightly better team in a crucial show by Sundown, and I think they'll get the job done there. Then we've got Wyoming traveling to Colorado State. Colorado State favored by a point and a half. Wyoming coming off a loss to Utah State, 24-16. Colorado State coming off a loss to Boise State, 56-28. Really a game that was close until Boise State special teams absolutely exploded and got the job done there. I've had a chance to see both these teams play this season. And to me, this game's going to come down to defense. Colorado State really can't stop anybody. Wyoming, I actually saw them do a decent job against Drew Locke, who is still very much 
a fringe Heisman Trophy contender, one of the better quarterbacks in college football this year. And I think the Cowboys pull off the upset here, although this is a game that could either be 7-3 to as the final score or it could be 47-43. Really could go either way, but I think the Cowboys get the job done there. Then we've got South Florida traveling to Houston. Houston favored by 7.5. South Florida coming off a 38-30 victory over UConn. They also have two wins over Power 5 teams, Georgia Tech and Illinois. Houston coming off a 49-36 victory over Navy. Their lone loss coming to a surging Texas Tech team. However, in a similar thing here, it's kind of a question of, do you think Arizona or Georgia Tech is better? As bad as Arizona has been this year, I still think they would get the job done against the Yellow Jackets. And I think Houston pulls off this one. And they're going to set up a very interesting matchup in the American Championship game between them and UCF. Then... Tulane traveling to Tulsa. Tulsa favored by two there. Tulane, they're two and five, coming off a loss to SMU 27-23. Tulsa, they're one and six, coming off a loss to Arkansas 23-0. They were blanked. Tulane, though, did manage to beat a Memphis team that gave UCF a real run for their money. And they suffered a close loss to SMU, as well as in their loss to a Cincinnati team that up until this last weekend was undefeated. I think Willie Fritz's team gets the job done here. If you look at their competition throughout the year, they've played slightly better teams. And while they haven't been successful, they've been close in those games. And I think the Green Wave gets the job done. And then lastly, Hawaii traveling to Fresno State. Fresno State favored by an astounding 24.5 there. Hawaii coming off losses to BYU and Nevada following that 6-1 and one start. They're now 6-3. and three. Fresno State, on the other hand, they beat New Mexico State 38-7. They're 6-1. and one. They're setting up a very interesting showdown between them and San Diego State in that Mountain West West division. So while I think that the Bulldogs will pull off the victory here, it's hard for me to imagine that they cover that 24.5 spread. That seems high to me. Granted, the Rainbow Warriors' defense isn't great, but their offense is pretty good, and they will manage to score some points, I believe, this weekend against Fresno State and fin- come underneath that 24.5-point spread. So... That's it for me today, guys. A little bit of a longer episode, a lot to get into. We'll be back on Monday to discuss all of the things that happened this weekend, as well as the latest college sports storylines. It's Inside You, the college sports podcast with your host, Xavier Roddick, signing out. You have a good weekend. Bye.